Okay, I'm glad you're here. We're going to jump in. Um, what I'd like to discuss today is the whole notion of, uh, of belief, of amuna, and especially a particularly uh, sort of confounding or vexing aspect of the nature of belief, which I want to explore today, um, which is a little bit counterintuitive, but I think we all experience it in our own lives. So our very lives are testimony to, to the reality of this, um, this wrinkle, if you will, which is the fact that for belief to remain belief, it has to be constantly renewed. And that um, is troubling on some aspect. Um, because it seems to me, just if you want to think of it in terms of uh, pure theory, if you will, it seems that once something is the case, it should remain the case. In other words, if I take a, if I take a vase and I put it on a table, it should remain on the table unless it's removed from the table. And I think that uh, we tend to think of belief in that way. I put belief in my heart and it should stay in my heart. Who keeps on taking the vase off the table? I put it on the table. What's going on? So there is, um, so obviously there's a, a different, you know, we, we often talk about the, uh, the physics of spirituality. There, there are different laws of physics that apply apparently to amuna, to belief, that, that don't apply to, to physical objects. So we have to investigate, which was what I'd like to do today, investigate some of these, some of the, these, um, these, these, these aspects, these, these, the, the, the physics of the spirituality of Amuna, simply put. Okay, so how does it work? And, and, and why is it like that? So uh, let me give you a few um, examples. There's, uh, there's a, a principle uh, that you see in all over the Torah, actually. Um, I was investigating where this appears, and it appears in about seven different places. So, so I was actually sort of surprised, because up until a few minutes ago, I knew the principle, that, but I thought, where is it hidden? And it, apparently it's hidden all over the place. So, so apparently this is a very widely, widely spread out and accepted truth. And uh, maybe you've heard it before, maybe you haven't. It's a little bit surprising, and again, confounding, but it's, it's in a nutshell what we're talking about today. Here it is. If you leave the Torah for one day, it leaves you for two days. Now, you say, well, where does that, where does that appear? Well, the, the Talmud Yerushalmi, the Zohar, the Medrash Shmuel, the Sifri, to name a few sources, and there are a few more places where it appears. It's all over the place. If you leave the Torah for one day, it leaves you for two days. Something very surprising. I'm going to give you an incredibly annoying experience from my own life, which is that there was a period of time when I was younger where I was really good at ping pong. <laughs> Not really, really good, by the way. <laughs> Although, arguably, it was very marginally in my blood. I'll tell you um, an odd factoid about me, which is that my mother's first cousin was the world champion ping-pong player four years the, of the whole world. And he used to tour, believe it or not, he used to give halftime demonstrations with the Harlem Globetrotters. So that tells you, you know, how superior he was, you know. And, um, and I listened to this. Why did he stop winning? 
And it's a, it's a real kind of interesting thing, a development, give you a little brief history of the development of the ping pong paddle here, which is that, you know, most of us are familiar with the, um, they call them, I think, pimples. You know, they're, they're the ping pong rackets that have like little kind of, well, pimples on them. And that's your basic, your very basic ping pong racket. And he was an expert at defense. You couldn't hit a ball by him. And the way my father explained it to me is he didn't win, you'd lose. Because he would just keep on returning every single shot until you made a mistake. And he could return absolutely anything. Then listen to what happened. With the rise of the Asian dynasty in ping pong playing, the ping pong paddle changed. And all of a sudden it went smooth. And the way he was able to return every single shot was because he had this incredibly honed ear. And it was like a radar. And so depending on the sound that the ball made when it was hit, he would know exactly where it was going and how to guard against it and how to return it. But once the paddle became smooth, it totally jammed up his radar and he wasn't able to win anymore. So, so that was the end of his being the reigning world champion of ping pong. Anyway, in my own very, very small way, I would, uh, there was a period in my life where um, I played ping pong and I was playing every day for at least an hour. And I, again, I was getting good, not real good, but I was getting good. Good enough to notice, and, and I defer to anyone here who is a professional at something, um, I think music would really apply to this. I think musicians will especially know what I'm talking about. And also athletes in any, any form of athletics I know will really understand what I'm talking about right now. I'm not very athletic, so this was my sort of brief uh, moment of relating it to it on, uh, on this level. If I didn't play for one day, I totally saw a difference in my game. I absolutely saw a difference in my game. I wasn't as agile. I, wasn't, I just wasn't as good. And there were, there were shots that I would make ordinarily that I absolutely wasn't making there. So, so I give you that example, A, for its complete random weirdness, and B, <laughs> to show you that there is a relatable aspect, if you can't relate it to it in terms of, uh, in terms of the system of belief, in terms of just normal motor coordination that you can see in your own life, that if you leave something as briefly as a day, that it actually has a measurable impact that you may have experienced and noticed in your own life. But again, this Torah principle, if you leave something for a day, it leaves you for two days. Okay. Let me give you another illustration of this from Rabbi Wolfson. Um, he says something really... I, I just love this example. He says, a person comes up to another person and says... I'm hungry. And the person says back to him, did you, um, did, you, did, you, uh, did you have breakfast? He says, yes, I had breakfast. He said, when did you have breakfast? He says, 40 days ago. <laughs> so you hear it and it sounds ridiculous. We all hear how absurd it is. And yet, to bring it back to the whole notion of belief, we say, well, wait a second, I put belief in my heart 
when I was 13, or when I was 5, or when I was 20, or, or a few months ago, or a few years ago, when I got inspired. And we think, and there's a reason to think this, because again, going back to the idea, if I put the vase on the table yesterday, when I wake up this morning, it should still be on the table. We think that there, there is a certain logic to expect that the belief that we put into our heart, into our minds, into our souls, should still be there from the moment that we put it there. But again, like the person who ate breakfast a month ago and expects that their stomach should still be filled from the breakfast that they ate a month ago, when we look at it on that level, we realize that it makes no sense at all. Of course we have to reinstill belief on a constant basis. So now, let's go a little bit deeper. What is it about the nature of the universe, the way the universe is composed, the, the physics of the universe, if you will, that works in such a way that it mandates that belief has to be constantly reinstilled? So, there is a positive side to this uh, law, if you will, but we haven't really concentrated on the other side of it. The positive side that we've talked about up until now is the notion that Hashem, in His goodness, renews creation every single moment. Every moment within every single moment. So every single moment is a new beginning. The world is literally made out of the fabric of beginnings. And as a direct consequence of that, a very important thing to know, it's never too late to do the right thing. You know, I, I, I tell you, just, you'll forgive me, but just to give you again a, a, a sort of very mundane example of this, last week, I, you know, I, I went through this real busy period, and, uh, and uh, I needed, I had a dentist appointment, and I didn't go. And, um, and so... Finally, just happily, luckily, uh, I went last week. So I was three months late for this checkup, you know? You know, by the way, once I... Have you ever been exactly 12 hours late for an appointment? <laughs> I was once, by the way. I was in... I was going to Israel, and there was a... I was in Italy at the time, and there was a flight to Israel, and the... Person, the cabbie dropped me off at the, the I don't know whether it was the domestic terminal instead of the international terminal, and I had really heavy bags of luggage. I mean, stuff that I wasn't really physically able to carry. And I had to take all of these bags because I was late, and I just had to, I had to make it. I was late to get to the terminal, and so I'm carrying bags that I can't carry, and I'm not just carrying them, I'm literally running with them through European streets, you know, with those like speeding tiny cars in Italy, like running under bridges with huge bags. I don't know, I, I don't know how physically I was able to do it and not get run over by a car. And I finally got to the terminal and they looked at it and they said, you're exactly 12 hours late because it was the, I, the PM and the AM... <laughs> Anyway, details, right? So, <laughs> um, so, so, what's the idea? The dentist, thank you. It's never too late to do the right thing. I'm at the dentist and they're looking at the, my, 
the recession of my gums. Does that already qualify as too much information? And, uh, and the, the uh, hygienist to the dentist, you know, he was due here, it's been nine months, and he was, he's three months late. And then the dentist said something that made me feel so good. He said, it's lucky you came in now. And I thought, you know, I was so focused on what I had done wrong, you know. But I realized, you know, as late as it is, as, as, as bad it is, as it is to have come three months late, it would have been much worse to come four months late. And even worse than that to come five months late. So the fact that I was at that point only three months late was actually a triumph of sorts. Okay, triumph is my word. <laughs> so, so anyway, the world, let's get back to the, the, the law of the universe here, the way God operates the universe. So, so we have this idea that the, it's not just an idea, we, we, we say it, you know, very strongly in our prayers. In fact, from, from Baruch Hu in Shachris to Shema, we say it two separate times. Now, there's not a lot of real estate between Baruch Hu and Shema. So you've got two separate buildings, both saying the same thing. This phrase occurs twice right there. So, in other words, not only do we believe this, we really believe it. It's a very important principle that the world is constantly being created every single moment. Okay. So, again, the positive side of that is the notion that it's never too late to do the right thing and that the world is made out of beginnings. Okay, that's what we usually focus on when we say that teaching. But now let's get back to this idea. Remember, our whole talk today is about the fact that we have to constantly renew belief and that the universe is set up in that way. God has created the universe in that way that it has to be constantly renewed. Now let's get to the point. If the universe is constantly being renewed, what does that mean? It's also constantly being destroyed. Do you hear that aspect of it? That's the other side of it. That means, again, let's go back to the idea. If you leave Torah for one day, it leaves you for two days. As an aspect of everything being renewed, that means that you have to actively carry everything that you have into the new space. And if you don't actively carry it into the new space, it starts to trail behind you. You can still get it. Don't think that it's lost. It's not lost. The dentist's office was still open and it was still located at the same place. You know? It's still there. But now it takes an active a more active effort to reclaim it and to get it. Okay, so now I want to go further into this. We have, I just want to say as, a, as, as an aside, but I'm telling you in, in sort of, cla- not just a, what we call the spirituality of physics, but in actual physics, you know, you have um, this principle expressed in terms of the word entropy. Entropy means that something left on its own, the molecular molecular structure within that thing starts to go like a little haywire. Just when it's left on its own, it sort of lends itself toward decay. So, for instance, an example of entropy would be ice 
turning into water. Like all the molecules start going their own way and it starts to loosen up. And that thing, which was solid a moment ago, all of a sudden becomes real liquidy. Right? So, so again, there you see it in, 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 in physics as well, this notion that we're talking about now on a spiritual level. Now, let's go further into this. Why is it? Why is it that if I perceived something as true with all my heart yesterday, why is it that today maybe I've got some questions on it? Shouldn't that thing which was true yesterday appear true today equally so? So the answer is the Yetzirah. There is a force in the world called the evil inclination. And remember the Gomorrah says that the Yetzirah, the evil inclination, and the Satan, the heavenly accuser, and the Malach Amavis, the angel of death, are all the same force. It's all one. It's that thing, because what's death? Death comes, death is decay, right? All of these things come and work to upset the balance. Upset the balance. There's a force in the world which comes to upset the balance. And we know that that force is not an independent power. That force works for God. It's not like God and the devil and they're wrestling it out. Who's going to win? The devil works for God. <laughs> Remember, there's only one power in the world. And if the Yetzirah comes to you and you say no to it, it jumps up and it dances. That's our tradition. If you say yes to it, it rips its clothes and cries. It doesn't want you to listen to it. It's just doing its job. Right? So, so, so we have this, again, on a spiritual level, this thing which is coming to throw off the balance is called the Yetzirah. Now, I want to... I want to show you an illustration of this, again, on a deeper level, of this principle that if you leave the Torah for one day, it leaves you for two days. A number of weeks ago, and if you didn't have a chance to hear this talk, please, please try to get it. it was, I, was, I, I felt like um, we got some good stuff here. It, it, it's called, um, What Does It Mean to Be a Letter in the Torah? And we were talking about the whole, we were talking about uh, Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haver in the Or Torah, in his parish to Malas Torah, was giving over sort of a cosmic map of the universe. And it was in the form of the letter Aleph. Right? And we said that the letter Aleph is really composed of three letters. You have the upper Yud, then you have this Vav, which goes diagonally, and then the lower Yud. Okay? And Rav Yitzhak Isaac was saying that, that this is a reflection of the upper waters and the lower waters, the top yud is the upper waters, the lower yud is the lower waters, and the vav is the sky in between. Because when God created the world, He separated the upper waters from the lower waters. So God really runs the world with two major principles. The laws of nature, and the laws that are above nature. So you basically you have nature, and you have miracles, if you will. And so... And then you have like the rakia in between. That's the vav. That's the sky in between. So the upper waters represent this miraculous aspect that how God guides the world. And the lower waters are sort of where we, 
we, we live. This is sort of like the laws of nature where God is very hidden. Now, when one studies Torah, one brings the upper waters, because Torah is compared to water. When one studies Torah and one does mitzvahs, one brings the upper waters down into the lower waters. Brings this miraculous aspect of God's guidance of the world, of the open revelation of God into the world. Okay. And then he said, with this you can understand something on a much deeper level, which is the whole account of how the Plishtim, the enemies of the Jewish people, came and after Abraham Avinu, Abraham Avinu, who, right, the first Jew, the one who reopened the world's hearts to the idea that there's one God in the world, he dug wells, and the police team came, and they plugged up the wells that Abraham Avinu had dug. And then what happened? Yitzchak, his son, goes and redigs those wells. So what's going on over there? The idea is like this. The upper waters, the upper waters are being sealed off by the plish team. And if you redig the wells, then what happens is you bring the upper waters back down into this world. So when you do mitzvahs, even if you're doing a mitzvah by yourself, alone in the room, what you're doing is unplugging the wells and bringing this upper light, these higher waters, this revelation of godliness, back down into this world. Okay, so now he says something very interesting. That's all background. You all know that already. So let's, let's now go a little bit deeper into what Rav Yitzhak Isaac says. He says, what's plugging up the waters? He says, dust, dirt, right? That's what's plugging up the wells. Now listen to this. Do you remember when Hashem curses the snake, the Nachash? Do you remember what He curses the snake? That what the snake is going to feed on? He's going to feed on dirt. He's going to feed on dust. Now I'll just tell you as an aside, a beautiful teaching based on this. Just a, just a beautiful teaching based on this, which is, comes from uh, Kutsk and Pshisk. The following thing, um, which says the following, that, you know, if you look at the curse the snake is getting, it's kind of a strange curse. Because a snake, wherever a snake goes in the world, there's always going to be dust. And if a snake eats dust, that's the curse. A snake is going to eat dust. Wherever a snake goes, it's always going to have something to eat. So in a weird way, it's as if God cursed the snake, it should be a millionaire. What kind of curse is that? So what they answer is, the Rebbe's of Kutsk, of Pshisk, answer something very deep, very beautiful. It says, you know what it is? You know what the nature of the curse is? The person no longer has, the snake no longer has to turn to God for its food. In other words, God just said, here's your money, go away. And was cutting off the relationship with the snake. So, a lot of times, and I don't know where this incident comes from. This is um, maybe, maybe 
God willing, we'll, we'll devote more time to this, this thought uh, on, on, on another occasion. But from a place of sincerity, a lot of people will say to themselves, I don't want to bother God with this problem. And I don't understand, I don't understand that instinct. Because anyone who thinks that God is too busy to hear their problem doesn't understand God in the slightest way. How infinite He really is. And yet sincere, good people say, I don't want to bother God. So the idea that you come to God with any problem, whatever it is, not, not however small, but even... The smaller the better. The smaller the better. <coughs> to go to God with, with everything is, a, is, a, is an aspect of closeness. And God loves that. It's the opposite of His relationship with the snake, which we know stands for the Yetzirah, the evil inclination. Okay, so now let's get back to the idea. The police team come and they plug up the upper waters from the lower waters. They're stopping the revelation of godliness in the world, of light in this world. Okay, and how are they plugging it up? With dust. And what does, what is dust, what does dust feed? Dust feeds the snake, the Yetzirah. So now, we're almost through the mathematical computation here. Here's the equal sign. That means blockage, spiritual blockage, feeds the snake, empowers the Yetzirah. The more blockage that we have in our life, in our relationship with God, the stronger the snake grows. The stronger the blockage goes, because the snake, the Yetzirah, feeds on blockage. So that's... Now let's return to what that, why I brought that to illustrate it. If you leave Torah for one day, it leaves you for two days. Do you see how that connects? Because if you leave it for one day, that's dust, that's blockage. And then the snake comes, feeds on that, gets stronger, and now all of a sudden it takes two days to get back to that initial place. Okay. So... Now I want to go a little bit deeper and show you how you see this in the word emes itself. Emes stands for truth. So, so what did we say? We say that God renews creation every single moment, but that the flip side of that means that God is destroying the world every single moment, that He's bringing a new world into effect every single moment. Right? So if you look at the word emes, it's Aleph, Mem, Tuf. Mem and Tuf, the second and third letters, right? Mem and Tuf spells the word Mace, which means dead. Isn't it weird? Isn't it weird that the word truth, which is only a three-letter word, that the word truth contains the word dead in it? Because remember, we, we believe in our hearts, if I believed yesterday, or last week, or when I was 13, or when I was 5, whatever it is, if I believed before, if I put the vase on the dining room table, the next day, the vase should still be on the dining room table. Right? 
And yet we see on a deeper level that truth has its own laws of physics. Truth contains the word death in it, which means that even if something is truth, it's not a contradiction to the truth. It's the spiritual nature of truth that it has to be renewed. It has the word death in it. But what else does it have in it? The letter Aleph. For something not to die, you have to constantly reconnect to the Aleph. That's what keeps it alive. That's what keeps it true. And then how does it remain true? Now we go back to the cosmic map of the Aleph. By digging the holes, by getting rid of the blockage, by not feeding the snake, by revealing the upper waters into the lower waters, spreading light in the world. But you see that if you just stand there, what's going on? I'm going about my business. I've got to go to the bank. Then I've got to make myself an amazing grilled cheese sandwich. And I don't use just any cheese or any bread. And while I'm doing that, what's going on? The police team are filling up the well. <laughs> so... You just go about your day's business. I'm not doing anyone harm. All I want is a grilled cheese sandwich. For goodness sakes. Okay, but... So now we have to talk about how how do you make a grilled cheese sandwich, right? It's like, God, I need some food so I can be strong, so that I can serve you. Ah, if you're doing that, no one's filling up the well while you're making your sandwich. Right? God, i got to go to work today so I can make some money so I can send my kids to yeshiva, right? Then you're going to work. No one's filling up that well. All right, let's look at the word sheker. The word sheker, it's the opposite of truth. And um, it's, it's a really interesting word. Anyone who's... Uh, I, I made a little sign with the word checker on it. Anyone who's uh, not in this room right now is listening to this. It might help if you write the letters Shin Kuf Resh. So, you know, the another interesting aspect, it's a famous aspect of the word uh, emes, truth, but people don't analyze the word checker quite as much, falsehood, lies. But everyone knows that emes goes sequentially in numerical order. Aleph is 1, Mem is 40, Taf is 400. So it goes in a sequential way. That's another aspect of it being true because it's, it, it follows a correct, honest narrative. Sheker, on the other hand, has a different aspect to it. You know, every letter has a, uh, a numerical equivalent. Sheker goes from... 300 to 100 to 200. It's out of order. Very strange. You know, you've got 100, you've got 200, why not have 300? But the shin, which is 300, is in the beginning of the word. So even on a numerical level, the word sheker is already lying to you. Right? Just the DNA of the word lie contains a lie, which is appropriate. Okay, so then let's, let's get a little more further into this uh, idea. You know what? You know what? One of the ways 
the world lies to us? It tells us that you're at the end of your process when you're really not at the end of your process. You see how Sheker, which is at the end, it's number 300, it's in order, the last of the three letters, it's coming first. It's telling you that the end is here when the end really isn't here yet. You haven't gone through the process to get to the end. So now, that breeds a lot of spiritual problems. Let me put it into normal everyday language. Is this all there is? <laughs> People look around and they say, Is this all there is? That's Sheker in motion. That's the end presenting itself to you right now, telling you this is the end, this is all there is. And then you say to yourself, is this all there is? Because if this is all there is, I'm checking out. But you want to hear something interesting? Shin, that letter, which comes and presents itself at the end, there's one more letter in the Aleph base. There's the tough. That means it's not the end. It presents itself as the end. But it's not the end. It goes a little bit further. People project and they say, okay, so... Or they have a false understanding of what the end actually is. They either don't know what the true end is, which is the fixing of the world, which is the perfection of the world, which is the end of all wars and all hatred and all obstacles to serving God. And they just look around and they see a little miniature of that. And they think it's basically here now. And they say, well, wait a second. If this is all there is, why shouldn't I get drunk every day? And why shouldn't I just chase after pleasures every single day? Because if that's all there is, what am I sacrificing for? What am I, nuts? What am I, a fool? So Sheker. You know, Sheker has another quality to it which is that unlike Emes, each of the letters of Emes, I don't have the word spelled out before you, but the Aleph has two legs on the bottom of it. And the letter Mem also has two legs on the bottom of it. And the letter Taf also has two legs on the bottom of it. Shin, like the way it's drawn classically, it's just balanced on the tip. And Kuf, it's just like one line, it's standing on one tippy toe. And also, resh, just one little point. In other words, it can easily be tipped over. You know, there's something that, that confuses a lot of people. You know, I, I, I can't say I've had any long camel rides through deserts for like weeks, you know? Um... But, from what people say about it, there are these big sand dunes in the desert. Now, can you imagine you're navigating in the desert? And, by the way, I just have to tell you one thing about navigating in the desert that I heard um, about the Aborigines, which I just saw was such a beautiful, amazing thing. They have these maps that they make. You ready? They make maps out of songs. Like, wait a second, how do you make a map out of a song? This is absolutely true. What they do is, they have certain songs that they have, and they say, like I'm making up the numbers right now, but the, the, this principle is real. They'll say, okay, this particular song 
Like if you want to get from here to there, and they're, they're going through the total wilderness, right? You walk in this particular direction for 50 repetitions of this song, and then you turn left. And then you sing this song 20 times, and you go right. And this is how they've been charting their way through the wilderness for centuries and centuries. They're amazing, right? So now imagine that you're going through the desert and you're foolish enough to say, to get a map from someone and they say to you, they see that giant sand dune over there? You go to that sand dune and then you make a right. Well, even all of us who haven't spent, I assume, any time in the Sahara know the following, which is that at night the strong winds come and that sand dune which was over there, that giant sand dune isn't there anymore. And you can't navigate by sand dunes in the middle of the desert. You cannot do that. You need something that's fixed. You see, the Torah is fixed. The Torah allows us to navigate through history because it's fixed. The principles are fixed. Don't be thrown by the fact that it doesn't talk about computer chips in the book of Shmos, right? Like, you know, Paro says to Yosef, I just had this dream. And Yosef says, no problem, I'll just Google dream interpretation. <laughs> That's not a contradiction to the truth of the Torah. These are all Google, things like this. These are all superficial aspects of reality. The Torah is addressing itself to the internal aspects, the truths that remain throughout all of time. And you have to understand something else about the Torah. The Torah is not old, and the Torah is not new. The Torah is forever. Let me explain what I mean by that. You know, you have... Rav Yitzhak Isaac Chaver explained something very deep about the notion of forever, eternity. If I asked you, or if you went up to an average person and you said, what, what's the definition of eternity or forever? Probably what they tell you is the following. Well, the, um, the ever unrolling of time. Right? And that's incorrect. Eternity, eternity is above time. It's beyond time. Eternity is the opposite of time. It's in a dimension above time. This is where the Torah comes from. It's not that it's old and new or forever. It's beyond forever. It's the underpinnings of all reality. So, so don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged if at some point in your life you had a breakthrough and you were thinking really clearly or you had a moment of inspiration and then all of a sudden it seems like how do I get back to that place? It seemed true, now it doesn't seem true. I loved it, but now 
Now I don't so much, and now maybe back then I was deluded. Maybe then I wasn't right. Maybe now I'm thinking clearly, and then I wasn't thinking clearly. I think it's the Rambam gives a gives a mushal, a, a, an example about reality. It says the following, getting back to navigating through the desert. When it's very dark, you don't know where you're going. And then all of a sudden there's a flash of lightning. And then the picture seems clear. And you know where everything is. But then what happens? It goes back to dark. That is the normal process of reality. That is how God intentionally created the world. That's how He intentionally created the world. Flashes of insight and then darkness. That's normal. That's not what's wrong with me. That's normal. And then He asks us to renew and to work on and to develop the truths that He shared with us and to not let go of them. And if they start to recede and if they start to seem distant, to understand that there's nothing wrong with us. That's the world. The famous example, and maybe this will kind of bring all these different ideas together, is if I'm standing still on an escalator that's going down, I go down. The world is an escalator that's going down. If you walk a little bit, you'll maintain your present level. So in other words, just to maintain your present level requires effort. That's the counterintuitive secret. That's what people don't understand. You have to work just to maintain your level. And then if you want to increase your level, then that really requires a genuine effort. So let's resolve to understand that if ideas that once seemed clear aren't as clear, that we'll go over them. There's a terrific emphasis that's put in Torah on something called chazor, which means review. And for a lot of us who are sort of like newness junkies, you know, I want to hear the new idea, the new exciting idea. Don't tell me the old idea. I'm going to shut down if I hear the old idea. But you know something? Review isn't going over old ideas. Review is revisiting stuff that you've learned and finding a new thought in the old idea. That's what review is. So you review your stuff and you find out, ah, here's another level within it, here's another level within it. Because I guarantee you, I promise you with all of my heart, you didn't get it all the first time. God creates the world in such a way where He makes it that it's impossible to get all the first time. You know, my best example of this is Sefer Devarim. That's the last book, the fifth book of the Chumash, of the Torah. It's also called Mishnah Torah, which means a repetition of the Torah. So if it's a repetition of the Torah, there shouldn't be anything new in there. And yet there are mitzvahs in Sefer Devarim that aren't in the rest of the Chumash. So how can it be, if it's just a review of the Torah, that there are mitzvahs there that are only contained there? And I'd like to say as an answer to that, that God deliberately made the world in such a way 
that the only time you hear something for the first time is when you review an old teaching. You review an old teaching, and then God will allow you to get access to treasures that you can't get unless you review. You only learn things for the first time if you review the old stuff. That's part of the way God made the world. So, so we have to understand regular, regular effort and a schedule and everything like that. And to fix this notion in our minds so that we know if something starts to seem a little bit distant, that that's normal. It's not a problem. And then you just start again. You just start again. You say to yourself, well, wait a second. Is there a God? Well, wait a second. Where did the world come from? The world came from somewhere. Well, maybe the world just popped into place by itself. Well, but there seems to be a, a very rigorous order to the world. There seems to be a creator. You know, the, the example that I like to give is, imagine, you know, one time I saw a documentary about the setting of the Queen of England's table. And there was really a small army of, of workers setting the Queen's table for a state dinner. And my favorite thing about it, you know, besides all the forks and, and knives and all the, you know, all that kind of stuff, and all the flower arrangements and all, you know, all the salad plates and, you know, all, all these things, besides all that, that these guys actually had a tape measure. And they were measuring the distance between the forks. And they were measuring the distance between the plate and the centerpiece. So that everything should be super, super duper exact. Now imagine you walk into a room like this, with a magnificent order, right? And now, you know how caterers, fancy caterers will sometimes take uh, food and shape it into an object, right? Imagine that there's a, like, a, some pate shaped into a, a swan, right? With a rose in its mouth. <laughs> and you, you taste, you taste this, this gourmet treat and you say the following. Listen, here's the point. You say the following. This doesn't taste good. Therefore, I deny the existence of the chef. <laughs> Does it make any sense whatsoever? This doesn't taste good. So therefore, I deny the existence of the one who laid all of this in front of me. You know what it is? A lot of us, we go through life and we experience hardship and pain and suffering and injustice. And we say, how can there be a God if what I'm tasting in life is bad? But there's no contradiction. There are many, 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 many different reasons why, why that can occur to a person. But God forbid, just because life can be hard sometimes and unpleasant sometimes, doesn't mean there's a God. And doesn't mean that God is good. So then we have to investigate and we have to go deeper. But we look around us and we see that there's a God and that there's an order to this world. And that I'm in this world. Why? Why does God... Why did... Do you know how many... I, I, at a certain time in my life, I did a project about dogs. 
So, you know, my dad was a, a shrink and he had his practice at the house. So he never allowed us to have dogs because the idea that you ring the doorbell and then charging at the patient who's coming to get some, like, you know, mental relief are like five barking dogs. It wasn't conducive, let's just say. So, so we never had dogs growing up. So at a certain point, I had to give myself an education about dogs. And you know something? It's, 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 it's fabulous how many different kinds of breeds of dogs there are. It's really quite amazing. But you know, you can ask yourself the question, why on earth did God create chihuahuas? You know, wasn't this world good enough without a chihuahua? But you see, you see the infinity of God's creativity and goodness that he just gives us like kiwis, you know? And he gives us chihuahuas and he gives us like all these amazing varieties of everything, including experiences. And so when we go over these type of things in our head, we get back to a grounded place and we say, okay, then it makes sense that, look, if God's going to create a chihuahua, he can create me too. I'm no worse than a chihuahua. Of a chihuahua and a kiwi have a purpose in this world. Certainly I have a purpose in this world. So now I know there's a God and there's some kind of order, even if I don't understand it, and we're not supposed to completely understand it. And I know that I'm here for a reason, because why else am I standing here? And then you go, okay, okay, now what do I have to do? I have to be at work in five minutes? Got to smile. <laughs> first things first. Got to not hit the car in front of me. <laughs> I'll park. It's a Torah class later on tonight. Maybe I'll check that out. And you continue to go forward. And you continue to rebuild your basis. And you rebuild. And you go over the basics. And you rebuild. And you rebuild. And you rebuild. And, you rebuild. and then you just get stronger and stronger and stronger. And you understand, just like you have to eat breakfast today, you also have to learn something today. And you also have to dedicate yourself to serving God, that even the mundane actions are service to God. And then the wells don't get filled up if you have that consciousness as you go about your daily activities. And then, at a certain point, you know what happens? You hear a sound outside your door. And you know what it is? It's the chauffeur blast of Mashiach. You should all hear it soon. Amen. Yeah.